Good morning, everybody. As uh, certain kids um, leave the room and as you settle into your seat, I just want to let you know if there's any suspicion going on right now as you observe me that, yes, I'm wearing purple because I lost a bet. I lost a bet because we missed a kick. We missed a kick because of the delay of game penalty. And I drove home questioning the goodness of God. (laughs) Two hours. Certain LSU fans, had they lost, uh, they would be sitting on the front front row today wearing uh, my colors, my school colors. Uh, They're not. In fact, they're not even here. And if they, uh, if you see them later today or this week and they ask you if the preacher wore purple, you say yes. If they ask you if he wore gold with LSU, you say, leave him alone. He's our preacher. Betting is a sin. Back off, right? (laughs) Okay. We're not going to go too far on this thing, are we? Hey, we're in a a series um, in September. We're looking at one passage. Uh, at least we're framing everything that we do, everything that we talk about from this one passage. And it's a prophet. You know, God used uh, throughout history, he, he governed and he guided through prophets, priests, and kings. And when we think of prophets, we've been saying, um, a lot of times we think of like angry, ornery guys, right? And anger just is not a good thing. Actually, anger can be a good thing. If you look at the sum of scripture, it says, Ephesians 4 says, be angry and sin not. There's a, there's a good kind of anger, but there's unfortunately... We know this, there's a bad kind of anger, and unfortunately, many of our homes have been touched by that. You might have felt that emotion on your way to church. It's hard to have a family and get to church, isn't it? I mean, just, just look at that. Give them an ugly look, the person next to you, because they did you wrong, you did them wrong. Just get it out of your system, right? But it, it's just, I mean, there's an ugly kind of, an ugly kind of anger. In fact, it says in Genesis that, that sin, that it's like it's... Um, like a, a tiger, it's just crouching at the door, waiting for an entry, and anger can be that way for us. But the prophets, uh, at many times over, they got angry. But here's what I like about it. It was an anger that did something about the problems. And unlike the song by John Mayer, Waiting on the World to Change, what I love about the prophets is they didn't want to wait on the world to change. And the, the prophets felt deeply. They had a sense, like an artist or a reformer, that let's not wait on the world to change. Let's give voice to the silent agony of people. Uh, we carry a heavy burden. We feel things fiercely. I love people who feel fiercely, don't you? I love people who want to do something about it, who want to care about people that are marginalized, that are, that are lost in the least among us that feel oppressed and they give them a voice. And that's what the prophets are about. We, we looked last week that there are some major prophets, scholar, Bible scholars say they're major prophets. Uh, we know those as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Remember the comprehensive exam? Uh, it's going to be comprehensive, the final exam that you'll have at the end of this September sermon series. But we looked at some minor prophets. You remember any of those? Uh, Jose and Amos and Joel and Obadiah and Jonah and Nahum and Micah and Zechariah, and Zephaniah, and Habakkuk, and Haggai, right? And then my favorite Italian prophet, Malachi. These are minor prophets. And if you were here last week or able to listen online, you know that we get these titles, major and minor, from from the Latin language, okay? And, And in Latin the Latin translation of Scripture. In Latin, the word minor, does, it doesn't mean uh, less important. It means shorter. The word major in Latin doesn't mean um, you know, more important. It means longer. So there's something rich from these little guys. I've told you before from this platform, you don't want to get to heaven one day and bump into Obadiah. And he's like, what would you think about my book? And you're like, uh, I didn't read it, okay? So let's dig into these prophets at times. And in Micah, this isn't the passage we're looking at, but check this passage out. It's in, it comes from Micah chapter 2, and it says the following. 
I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. Does that sound autobiographical from the football weekend? He will be the prophet for the people. Now, let me help you with the tense and the meaning here. The prophet who is saying, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. The scriptures there are saying that that guy, that prophet will be the prophet for the people. In other words, the guy who says that's going to be really popular. Now, let me ask you, church, what happens? What, what does wine and beer do to you? And don't act like you don't know. All right. I'm calling, I'm calling hypocrisy out. Okay. What is wine? Does it make you, does it make you more alert or more comfortable? Again, don't act like you don't know. (laughs) 90% of the crowd knows the answer. They're just afraid to say. It it makes you more comfortable, right? And that's what Mike is saying. You got to dig into the meaning of some of these prophets. Uh, But he's saying that that's that's the prophet you want. You don't want the one that alerts you, that alarms you, that rouses you from your complacency and slumber. You want the prophet what? That'll make you comfortable. That'll make you feel good. Those, that's the kind of preachers, the kind of prophets that we want in our day. And Micah says, hey, there's a, there's a different way. And like Amos and some of the other prophets, four in particular, tell us, essentially I'm paraphrasing from several, but they say to us that your, meaning, your, your religious gatherings, your offerings, your festivals, the times you get together for corporate worship, they don't mean anything. They're empty and they're meaningless unless you move to action. Isn't that true? Don't you have a sense of that? I've never felt uh, more alive and attuned to the, to the pulse of our church in this day, in, in 2015. I've never seen more of you uh, calling us, texting us, talking to us, circling up and saying, what can I do? I want to do something. The church has a reputation of being a boring place, an uninspiring place, and isn't that a tragedy? I don't have... 10 easy steps to get us there, but I'm just telling you, if anything, this place shouldn't be boring. This call to follow and to to change the world, it's a big thing. It's an adventure, and it's exciting, and it calls out um, the best in us. So what's the verse we're looking at? You guys know uh, one guy, at least one of you, has a tattoo with it on uh, somewhere on your body. I don't care to look. But Micah 6, 8 says what? It says, do justice. Say it with me. Do justice. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Now you know the answer. Let's say it together. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Can we do it again? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Last week, we looked at this idea of doing justice, of righting wrongs, and what what does it look like to to be that? And then a nice blend, a consummate blend, a nice, healthy, robust balance to, to doing justice is loving mercy. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn if you have a, if you want to open up your phone or tablet, uh, if you have an iPhone 6 plus like I do, your phone is a tablet. I mean, that's a big old honking thing, but uh, tune in or turn to, um, if you have a black ESV study Bible in front of you, it's page 969. We're going to put up in a moment, Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at one of the, well, it is the most famous story in the history of the world. In just a moment, we're going to look at that as we consider doing mercy. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to look at the conversation with the religious person, the lawyer, in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 25 to 29, and then we're going to look at the story that Jesus told that was prompted by his conversation uh, with the lawyer. Luke chapter 10, let's look at that. You guys there? You ready? 
And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. By the way, that word behold is good to use around the house. I'm a, I'm, I'm a much more effective dad around the house when I say, behold. My kids are just wrapped with attention. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus' question to the lawyer, who liked to ask questions themselves, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Circle a couple of words there. Circle the word mercy, of course, because that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about loving mercy or kindness. And circle that word neighbor. Love your neighbor. Interesting thought, you know, we, we're really not told to love the whole world. You know, only God can do that. Jesus uh, gives us, the Bible gives us something very concrete, love your neighbor. And the word neighbor uh, derives from the word nigh, N-I-G-H, nigh, and it means to be near or to be close. Love your neighbor. What does Jesus say? Love your neighbor how? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm confused. Anybody else confused? What is this self-love? I mean, isn't that the problem with this world, I mean, isn't that the, the source of conflicts among us and what's happening on a global and neighborly scale and even within our own homes as we got different people with different desires and we got a lot of self-love? In fact, didn't, I mean, I'm, I'm a little confused because Jesus, didn't he teach us to die to ourselves? in fact, to deny ourselves. So, which is it? Love yourself or deny yourself? And I think the teaching is this, that self-love in biblical terms is not self-indulgence. In fact, to love yourself is to want to die to the sin and to the idols that cheapen and ruin your life. You think sin's not crouching at your door? You think sin doesn't want to sabotage your heart if you leave it unguarded? And so to love ourselves, for you to love yourself, is to have a real healthy fear of God and a healthy hatred for sin and its effect in your life. So self-love can be a very good thing, not self-indulgence that seeks to please oneself, that seeks to assert your rights over the responsibilities that, you, that God has given you. And look, our commitments can at times seem heavy, can't they? Our responsibilities weigh on us, but to love ourselves is to live those out. To love ourselves is to think, what do I need to die to? That really is love. Love yourself, love your neighbor rather, as yourself. Neighbor means nigh, to be close, to 
to be near. Those who are in the normal traffic pattern of your life, those people who you can love, you should love. Several years ago, we had just started Fondren Church, and my wife was waiting on me at home. She wanted to have a conversation about how I could do better serving and partnering around the house. And my, my immediate response was not to listen or be empathetic. My initial response was to generate counter-arguments. My immediate reaction was to cite times when I did partner with her and serve around the house, like in the late 90s. <laughs> your, neighbor, your neighbor, according to Jesus, are those closest to you. And can I tell you in a very serious vein what God continues to teach me? And I have to apply confession and repentance. Why? Because I'm a preacher. My wife, if you notice, sits on the front row. She's here almost every Sunday I am. Right? We're called to love our neighbors and to love those closest to us. My wife, she tells my story. My kids, I want them to be glad that I'm their dad. And I won't be perfect ever. But I need to be honest. And what a sin. It would grieve the heart of God. It would quench his spirit if I spend my day starting to st trying to start something that becomes great and it becomes full of vain glory where I'm missing the neighbors. You see, the neighbors, the, the, those who, or who are closest to you, who matter the most, are not in this house or that house. They're in your house. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this story, this conversation that before the story, the lawyer comes and the lawyer is looking for loopholes, right? Because lawyers are, are trained to do that. But forget lawyer for a second. Let's just look at a human being because the human being, the scripture says, was seeking to justify himself. That's convicting, isn't it? Are you ever there? Ever seeking to justify yourself? And in doing so, he asked him a question because he wanted to know sort of a, the minimum daily requirements. What, what, do I, what do I need to do? Who is my neighbor? Now, that sounds like a too simple of a question. In fact, it's even insulting. Let's just move right past it. Your neighbor's the, the Joneses. Your neighbor's right next door. The preacher just told us. It's the people who are nigh to us, who are close by. That's where the word comes from. That's your neighbor. But there was a debate swirling about. And in this era, the, they went from prophets, priests, and kings to, to something new called rabbis. And Jesus was the rabbi. Jesus was the one who stood out, and he was different. Let me tell you one of the reasons. You see, some in Israel at the time said that your neighbor is just those devout Israelites. Just those who really know the Torah, and they can cite it. Those who can memorize some scripture. That, that's it. That, that's, that's who your neighbor is. And others, rab, rabbis, they taught their tribe, their people, that it wasn't just the devout Israelites. It was also the average Israelites, those who knew a little bit of Scripture, those who could pray a little bit, those who knew a little bit, the, the, the devout and the average. And there were some rabbis who were teaching. These were the progressives. They were teaching that your neighbor meant the, the, the devout, the average, and they even threw in tax collectors and sinners. That could be your neighbor. But no rabbi, no rabbi would teach that your neighbor could include Gentiles and Samaritans. And you see, this lawyer was looking for the minimum. He had a sense of obligation. What, what, should, what should I do? 
What's the minimum that I need to do? Seeking to justify himself, looking for the loophole. Years ago, I read that there's a couple of different types of oughts in our lives. O-U-G-H-T, ought. People tell you that, right? You ought to do this. I oughta, hey, you oughta. There is an ought of obligation. Let's put these up. There's an ought of obligation, and there's also an ought of opportunity, okay? Do you get this? An an ought of obligation is when you feel uh, pressured or demanded to do something. It's a necessity. You just, you have to do it. An ought of opportunity is I get to do something. Okay, uh, let's, let's consider a few examples. You should pay your taxes. Is that an ought of obligation or an ought of opportunity? Obligation, yeah. <laughs> a finance guy on the front row. That's a, <clears throat> an ought of obligation. It, you ought to drive the speed limit. Ought of obligation or ought of opportunity? Ought of obligation, yes. Uh, you ought to see... Mississippi State play football. Ought of obligation or opportunity? Obligation, that's right, yeah. (laughs) Here, here, the lawyer, he saw love as an obligation. And Jesus is saying the greatest opportunity in life is love. To live is to love. To love is to live. Scripture tells us that everybody knows this. God is love. And Jesus moves it way out of the ought of obligation category into the ought of opportunity. And with that stage set, he tells this most famous story known as the Good Samaritan. And in this story, we have the man who was beaten up, stripped down, and left for dead. He had been robbed. So here he sets the tone. Here's someone who's going to be what? The receiver of love. But who? Who will be the giver of love? We've got three options. The priest is the first. The priest is the one, the man, who knew the law. This guy could quote some scripture. When I was a young guy, I got into some Bible memory. I was about the age of these guys of Haddon and Wesley on the front row. And I, I got into some Bible memory. Why did I do that? Because we were rewarded at the church that I grew up in. If we could memorize some scripture, we got some good stuff. Uh, the praise of man came my way and toys and trinkets. I just got a lot, of, a lot of good stuff from memorizing the Bible. And we would have Bible memory contests. We would stand up and see who, which kid could memorize the most scripture. And I just mowed them down, man. I was like Bible memory guy. I mean, no one came close to the scripture that I could memorize. But then one year, this girl moved to town. Her name honestly was Katrina. She was like a storm that just blew in. And she was just amazing. A little bit older than me, but Katrina knew scripture better than me. And that first time that we went mano y mano, if you will, and she won, that hurt. In fact, I had her killed later. (laughs) The answer, the answer is not, or the key is not knowing the answer. In fact, you know, we can live life And we can answer correctly. Notice what Jesus said in the story. He didn't say answer correctly and live. Now, the lawyer did answer correctly, okay? Lawyers are good like that. He answered correctly, but Jesus did not say answer correctly and live. He said what? You remember? Do this. 
and live. Do this and live. And what did the priest do? This one who knew the Torah, who had expansive, vast, encyclopedic knowledge of the law. He would stand up and he would lead worship. A priest, as many of you know, would mediate between God and man. That was his distinction. And he would stand up in front of the people. But when he saw a person in need in Jesus' story, the one who stood up before the people as a religious leader was the one who walked by the robber. The next person in his story, you know, is the Levite. And the Levite is not quite a priest. The Levite is, let me put it simple for you, the Levite is like the assistant to the priest. Okay, he, uh, this person knew um, a good bit of scripture, a little bit, not as much as the priest. I think if, if we told it in this day and age, we may say a Presbyterian walked by and then a Baptist walked by, right? All right, now I grew up Baptist, okay, I'm not trying to insult Baptist, but I'm just, you know, Presbyterian, you, you know some Presbyterians, they know the scripture, don't they? I mean, they know, they know the scripture. And Jesus in this story, the priest walks by, the Levite walks by, but then in his story, the Samaritan comes up. And the Samaritan sees the man. And he didn't answer correctly. What did he do? First of all, he felt. He felt and he didn't, he probably wasn't overwhelmed with an ought of obligation, but an ought of opportunity. Whereas the, the priest and the Levite probably said, if I help this man, if I do help this man, what will happen to me? I think safety was a concern. Religious origin and cleansing was a concern. It, some of you, anybody kind of germaphobic in the room? Like if you help somebody, are they going to touch you? Do you have to touch them, right? I mean, let's just be honest. And there was some of that going on at the time. But the, the priest and the Levite, they walked by. But the Samaritan helps. And if you see in verse 34 that we read earlier, uh, do this later or look at it now if you're open in your Bible. Look at verse 34 and you'll see seven verbs. That's a short verse. And Jesus gives us what I believe, I counted uh, yesterday, seven verbs. But for these seven verbs to be acted out, he had to feel. And there's a Greek word that I don't even know if the screens are big enough to put it up on the screen. To just, it's a really big word and has to do with your intestines and your bowels and being moved with compassion. It's a gut feeling. And that's what the Samaritan had, this, this gut feeling. Now, why did Jesus use a Samaritan? Generations earlier, the Jewish people were held captive in Babylonian captivity. And the Samaritans came in and they took over the land and they mixed their religion. And Samaritans were known as enemies of God and half-breeds. And Jesus takes someone who in the culture at the time was known as an enemy of God, a very despised half-breed, and you know this, he makes them the hero of the story. I don't know what modern parallels could be. Maybe it's... Um, a Cuban refugee seeing Castro on the side of the road, or someone from South Korea seeing Kim Jong-il's son on the side of the road, or Donald Trump seeing Hillary Clinton on the side of the road, right? <laughs> but he sees someone who is despised, and he makes them the hero of the story. One night earlier this week, I was writing this sermon, and I was with one of you at a coffee shop, and the coffee shop closed, and I walked out, and there was a homeless man on the street who asked me to, if he could use my phone. 
And my first thought was, he's going to take my phone and run. And my second thought was, I'm just too busy. In fact, I'm writing a sermon based on a story that Jesus told about religious people that were too busy to help people (laughs) on the street in need. Then I remember the nature of the sermon that I was about to write. I thought, I'm going to let him use my phone, which I did and which I got back. You see, religion can in many times get in our way. Religion can get in our way because we began to think like I did when I, when I was a kid. And this like, this hurt me, this hurt me bad, is I began to get praise for what? For knowing the right answers. Answer correctly and live. No, no, no. Do this and live. And that's so basic. It's so simple, isn't it? Do this and live. I went gator hunting a week ago today. We left uh, Brent Shorter and Tyler Hendricks and a couple of guys. We left at 5 o'clock last Sunday afternoon and got back about 5 a.m. I got back in my bed about 5 a.m. We went looking for alligators and I was on a boat. Evidently, they didn't want me on their boat. So they put me on a boat with some other strange guy and we were on the boat and, and, you know, gator hunting is, have you been? I mean, it's, it's thrilling. It's exciting. It's really not that scary because, you know, we, man dominates the gator and it's not so much scary, but it's just, it's just, it is thrilling. And it's just an experience I've never had before, but like anything, like most things, they're, they're moments of boredom. And my friend, my new friend in the boat, he's like, Hey Robert, I got this new app. It's a stargazing app. He just holds up his iPhone, you know, and you're seeing the stars. He hands it to me like there's something spectacular about a stargazing app. And I'm, I was looking at it just so unimpressed at the app. I remember thinking, well, I could look at this or I could just, you know, look at the stars, right? <laughs> Do I need to look at this? Do I need to know all these names? Does it need to be this artificial and complicated? Or can I just put this iPhone down? And guess what? Just look up at the stars because there was a starry host. And sometimes we try to add on and modernize and make things shiny and newfangled. And we miss something really basic. And what's vital and most important about this story is do we act? Do we do justice? Do we love mercy? And do we walk humbly with our God? If you back up, I'd love for you to do this later. In Luke chapter 10, if you look at the first several verses, I love Luke 10 because you got the greatest story ever told in the Good Samaritan. You got, his, you got his engagement with the attorney about what does it mean to love your neighbor and it comes down to mercy. And you have the story of Mar- Mary and Martha. Luke chapter 10, verse 38, 42. And I love this because the Good Samaritan story shows us the importance of action. We need to act. We need to go. We, we need to live sent lives. But the story of Martha and Mary teach us what? That we need to sit at our Savior's feet. We need to be people of reflection. There's one spiritual leader in our day. He's got something in New Mexico. I think it's kind of a fruity, nutty place out there, but he calls it the Center for Contemplation and Action. I'm like, man, what a great title. I wish I'd have thought of that. One day I want to retire and hang out at the Center for Contemplation and Action. But you know, that, that flows from our Savior. Contemplation. Let me not be like Martha, anxious and troubled by many things. Let me be like Mary in this story, this real story, not a parable. And let me sit at the Savior's feet. Let me, let me think about the Savior's love for me. Let me ponder and savor and contemplate. But Jesus teaches us to be people who contemplate, but are people of action. We don't just 
sit around. And in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and following, if you have a study Bible, and you can look at it now or look at it later, but it'll say Jesus sends out the 72. And in this story, there are, and I'm going to do this real quickly, there are several principles I want to give you for living out mercy, for loving mercy and loving our neighbor and doing as Jesus taught us to do. The first one is get out. Get out. Jesus tells them to go and to go out and to get into their neighborhoods. Now, have you ever thought about it? Jesus was a God and he was man. He was fully God and he's fully man. Does that blow your mind? Can I explain that? Not at all. Have I tried to? Yes, in vain. But Jesus was a real man. And Jesus was, he grew up in Nazareth and he was a carpenter. So I imagine that sometimes there were guys who would come over and say, hey, Jesus, can I borrow a hammer? Jesus, can you help me build this table? And he was a real man who taught about loving his neighbors, but in fact, he himself loved his neighbors. And 2,000 years plus later, we are here because of him. And 2,000 years plus later, look at the impact that he made like no other. And 2,000 years plus later, if, if a man is out hammering something and he misses the nail and hits his thumb, what's the name he's most likely to say out loud? Jesus Christ. Makes you wonder if Jesus, when he missed the nail, if he said, me. <laughs> I don't know. But Jesus had neighbors. Jesus was a man. Jesus was a boy who grew into a man. Luke 2 tells us, Luke 2.52, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He grew spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically in all those ways. But he was a carpenter. He lived in Nazareth and he had neighbors. He taught about loving his neighbors and he himself loved his neighbors. And in teaching, he says, hey guys, get out. 72 of you, go out and get to know the people in your neighborhood. Do that. When I was growing up, there was a lady who lived down the street, and she was one of those neighbors who was, seemed to be a little cranky and standoffish. And one day, one season of life, we lost our dog, our dear pet. And this dog wandered off from home. It was gone for days. Guess who found our dog? Guess who brought our dog back? And I said, lady, you'll never know what, what kind of gift this is to me. Thank you so much for rescue and our dog, we got to, we began to get to know her and learned a little bit more, actually much more about her story. Uh, several months later, our cat wandered off. Guess who brought her back home? The cat. And I said, lady, you have no right interfering in our lives. <laughs> if God wanted that cat brought home, he would have brought the cat home, right? <laughs> and we learned about this neighbor through rescuing pets and being out with her is that she was widowed. Her husband had died a very tough death. And she was alone, and we discovered over time that she was a treasure of gold that lived in the street down from us. And years and years later, when I was a man living out of state and her funeral came, I flew back home to be at her funeral. What a great neighbor. And I'm, I'm so glad that we got out that we got out to get to know her. And Jesus is saying, get out in your neighborhoods. And when you get out in your neighborhoods, go together. The first thing is get out. The second thing is uh, do mercy or ministry. Do mercy in community. The 72 were sent out and he sent them two by two. Why? Because alone we get easily discouraged. Because when we're alone, we want to give up. And Jesus knows the power of community. 
Do you know anybody who's on the margins of ministry? And they're doing things. I mean, they're, they're our heroes. They're living in the neighborhoods, ministering to the children, caring for the, the fatherless generation, uh, at risk. Their lives, they have not much concern about safety and comfort as you and I. And have you noticed, if you know any people like that, man, they grow weary, don't they? And they need people. Just this month, God's put someone in our church family who, that describes them. They're a hero in how they give, but they've looked around and realized in so many ways they're, they're not doing ministry. They don't, have, they don't have enough arms locked around. And Jesus says, go and do mercy. Get out in your neighborhood and do mercy in community. And as you do, all along the way, before, during, and after, pray. Pray. Pray that the what? We, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out labors. Pray, pray that people would be receptive and responsive and open. Fourthly, Look for the person of peace. Do you know this story? No, we didn't read it today. I'm referring you back to it. But Jesus says that some people are going to reject you. Some people are going to reject you. And he says, long before Taylor Swift said it, he says, shake it off. Shake it off and move on. Some of us don't understand that. Do you know? He, what, what, it's a fascinating phrase that he uses there. But look for the, purpose, the person of peace. He's saying that your, your, your talent and ability, your time, you're a finite human being. There's only so much time. Look for people that want to be blessed, that are looking for peace and shalom. Look for those people and minister to them. And you will experience rejection if you want to minister in your neighborhood. Some people will reject you. Was Jesus rejected? Isaiah 53, 5, he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. But let me say this, Jesus, even though he was rejected, did not let rejection make him become a negative person. Can I say it again? Jesus was rejected, but he did not let rejection make him become a negative person. Jesus knows, and he wants to tell us today, I'm convinced that we are to look for the people who are open, the people of peace. Fifthly, live in true humility, not false superiority. Jesus, again, says something interesting to the disciples here on, being, on loving their neighbors and acting out, doing mercy. He says that they ought not to take an extra backpack or money bag, uh, knapsack, or sandals. Fascinating, interesting, perplexing. What's he saying? He's saying travel light and share your need. Don't have everything. You see, some of us think that for Jesus to send us out, that we need to have it all, don't we? That we need to have everything together. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to, to do mercy. I'm not ready to have a ministry of mercy in my neighborhood with people around me because I don't have everything together. I don't have all that I need. And Jesus is saying, guess what? That's your gift. That's your gift. I've told you several times as a church that I can't fix a thing. Like I'm really dumb. Like my kids, when a toy breaks or something, they walk past me to their mother. That's just who I am. It's sad, isn't it? So every new house we've gotten, every neighborhood we, we move into, what do I do? My wife and I strategically get to know some of the, some of the, our neighbors, right? So that what? So they can come to our house and fix things because I can't. You're laughing, but it's true, isn't it? Everywhere we've lived. But you know what? Some of our best conversations and friendships and ministry has taken place when we've said, hey, when she said, hey, my husband's stupid. Can you help us? <laughs> he can't do anything. And for you and I, I'm telling you, 
We tend to think, well, I've got it all together. I'm completely loved and forgiven. I know everything I need to know, and, and, and I'll go minister, and I'll give to them. But Jesus modeled and taught us that your best ministry can happen when you share your needs with other people, when you say, hey, I need something from you. And if you notice that relationships work best based on democratic principles, that if, you're, if you just become Bible answer man or person who has it all together, nobody eventually, nobody's going to want to be around you. But if you're vulnerable and you share needs and you travel light, you'll find the people of peace in your community, your neighbors. Proverbs 27, 14, I love this passage. It says this, if anyone blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. There's a commercial out right now. Have y'all seen it? It was advertising yesterday during football. The guy's in the bullhorn. He gets a great night's sleep on his mattress and he walks out with a bullhorn and he announces that he's got a, you know, he slept well. And so he's going he's gonna to strike like a cobra that day, right? He tells all of his neighbors and they're just looking at him dumbfounded, right? Don't be that guy. Now get to know your neighbors, live sent, be out there, but don't be that guy. In other words, this passage, I think there's something literal to it, all right? Because there's morning people and not morning people, right? If you're a morning person, raise your hand, right? I hate you. I hate every one of you. If you're like me, you're not a morning person, raise your hand. God bless you. Yes, that's right. A lot of love in God's heart for us. Everybody knows if you're a morning person, you really can get under other people's skin, right? And we can do that. And I think what the passage ultimately is saying is, is learn how other people receive love. Don't just go pounding on the door and be obnoxious to your neighbor. Because some of us can do that. Jesus wants us. He wants us to get out of our homes and out of our comfort and to look for needs. When we said pray earlier from Luke 10, Jesus says, hey, if you want to be on a mercy mission, one of the things you're going to need to do is to pray. There's a man in our church who was praying in his neighborhood a couple of years ago, actually about three years ago. He was walking his neighborhood and he was praying. And he, come, he several times saw a young man sitting in a car who looked alone and afraid, troubled. And one day he taps, taps on the windshield. This guy in the car rolls down his window and he says, I've been praying for you. I've been seeing you and I've been praying for you. How can I specifically pray for you? And can I tell you, I've never once, I've lived in a lot of places, California, Florida, here. I've never once had anybody be offended if I've asked them, can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? My friend discovered that the man in this car was a 16-year-old guy who told him, I'm about to be a dad. And I don't know what to do. Love, look, listen, feel, pray, be open to friendships of how God can use you. You remember a few weeks ago we were talking about the church on point and on purpose and we were talking about prayerful mission and we were talking about how a lot of churches were like cruise ships. And then we said, but we could be a battleship. And I was listening to one pastor in North Carolina this week talk about how we're really not called to be a cruise ship or a battleship. J.D. Greer of Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina says uh, we ought to be like an aircraft carrier. 
where, you know, in a, on a battleship, a cruise ship, it's all about the consumer. It's all about you getting what you want and being catered, uh, us being a purveyor and a provider of religious goods and services. That's what a cruise ship church is like. But a battleship is where, you know, the battle is fought. But guess what? The battle's really not fought here. You know that? It's really not fought here. We ought to be like an aircraft carrier where you come in and you get fueled up and you go out. And when we close the service all, every Sunday here in September and following, you'll have opportunities to sign up for specific areas to serve in our church, in our community, and in the world. Daniel Wagner, our new student pastor, has taken some kids, including mine, to Matamoros Children's Home to serve. There's opportunities like this around the world, here in our neighborhood, and within the walls of, these church, of this church. And that is a good thing. And I've challenged our staff to give you more opportunities tangibly to step in and serve. That's what we ought to do. But yet, some of you are waiting on us. And I'm saying to you, man, this thing is an aircraft carrier. Be fueled up and go. And where you work and where you live, you bring good right there. Don't wait on your church. Don't wait on your pastor. Look for the justice and the mercy that you can bring. Let's pray.